one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bundjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery are purveyors of beautiful non-alcoholic beverages. Live on your own terms, be true to you, and drink what's good for your body and soul. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by Fiona McIntyre. Fiona is a fairly new sober person. She just completed one of my six-week challenges and was part of this most amazing group of humans who came through and just absolutely smashed the shit out of it. And so I wanted Fiona to come on and talk today a bit about her journey and also just talking about early sobriety because oftentimes I have people on who are years sober or one year sober. or So I really want to talk about that early stages and what it's like. So Fiona, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. A bit nervous, but quitting alcohol is such a huge step out of your comfort zone. I figure I can take on anything once doing that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, before we go on, what are you feeling in your body and where? Oh, I'm feeling pain in my knees today. I think mm -hmm. that's just a bit of a sign of being tired and run down. I've had mm. sick kids all week. So one was home for three days, another one's home today. So it's just that feeling a bit weary and run down kind of feeling, but also butterflies excitement kind of thing to be able to do this as well. Amazing. So, and what's it like for that to acknowledge that there's a bit of weariness there and a bit of fatigue and tiredness and how is, is that okay for that to be there? Uh, yeah, it is because I think it's just a bit of a common state when you're a working mother and yes. it's just one of those, probably one of the easy reasons for mums to drink, I think, is just to sort of numb that tiredness, but also a reason to not drink because, of course, alcohol doesn't give you energy. So uh, exactly. learning the difference between that has been a good part of this journey. So it's a reminder to do other things, to focus on self-care, to deal with those feelings rather than drinking to deal with them. So that's the important learning I've had so far. Absolutely. And part of this process is learning to feel into the body and 
asking that question, is it okay for this to be there, this feeling? And sometimes it's an appropriate feeling. Like we're tired and run down because we're busy mums or dads, so we've got a lot on and that's an appropriate body response. It's tired. So rather than ignoring it or wishing it away and drinking through it so that we create a false feeling in the body, we can just go, okay. And then how can I respond and show up to that? What's presenting in my body? It's so much healthier such a better way of being. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the valuable tools I've learned is actually to sort of, instead of forcing myself to do things that I think I need to do, like going for a walk or doing those kind of things, I'm instead just sort of lying down going, okay, do I feel like going for a walk right now? And my body will say, no. And I was like, okay, well, what do I feel like doing? Maybe it's just some yoga stretches. Maybe it's just, you know what, just lie here. Maybe it's just take 10 minutes to just sit down and have a coffee and a little piece of apple cake. If that's what you need to do just to sort of recharge yourself, do that instead. Don't flog yourself because you think you should. Think about what your body actually needs. And so it's taking practice, but learning how to sort of just take that critical brain away to say, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this, and just go, no, 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 you shut up. What do I need to do? What do I really want to do? What's in my best interest to do right now? And sometimes you might come up with a few options which I just sort of think and I go, okay, well, what's that option like? And I kind of go, oh, that doesn't really sing to me. What about that option? Oh, yeah, that feels better. And so I sort of go through that process. So it is a process of just slowing down your mind, Mm. slowing down yourself because also I tend to operate at a fairly quick pace of life to move around doing all these things. So just actually even learning to slow down to go through that process is an ongoing challenge, but one, like anything else, requires practice to get better at. Amazing. Oh, God. Yeah. Tears in my eyes over here. I'm just like beaming and just so uh. happy to, <laughs> to hear you say that. It's absolutely beautiful to, to learn how to respond to our bodies with what we need in that moment and not yeah. flog our fucking selves. Oh, yeah. no. And I think I'm really seeing the benefit of being able to show my kids that too, to be able to say, take a moment, just work through your feelings, think about how does that choice make you feel inside? And so really valuable skills to be able to teach kids as well, because my daughter's nine this year and her life has become frantic with all the stuff that she's got on. And that makes my life frantic as well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but even trying to get her, because I think it's so easy for any of us to become overwhelmed the amount of things that we either have to do or choose to do. So got to find ways to be able to just take moments out to process and check in with ourselves and ask ourselves, how are we going? How are we doing? What do I need today? So that sort of routine has been really important to get into. Absolutely. So Fiona, tell us a bit about your background and your history with alcohol when you started and how that relationship evolved. Well, I think my story is maybe a little bit different to what a lot of people have on here where I I wasn't the sort of started at 14, 15 kind of drinker. I remember very first taste of alcohol was at three years old, not from anybody giving me alcohol, but I remember very clearly downstairs and my dad having a glass of Tia Maria and me thinking it was a chocolate milkshake. So when dad went upstairs, I went, oh, I'm going to have some of daddy's chocolate milkshake and sculled it. My dad came back downstairs. I'm, I'm not sure what I was thinking that he wouldn't notice his chocolate milkshake was gone, but he came downstairs and sort of saw me woozing around and wobbly a bit. And I just said, oh, daddy, your milkshake's not good. Um, <laughs> and so... <laughs> That was my first introduction to alcohol. My second introduction was when I was 13 and I was at my uncle's wedding and I had a, I was allowed to have a glass of champagne and I took a sip, what I thought was a sip, but was actually a gulp in the middle of his speech and sort of coughed and started choking right in the middle of the speech. So to start off with me and alcohol didn't really get on. I sort of grew up always being told or made to feel that I wasn't good enough the way I was. I wasn't the right kind of person. I wasn't the right kind of little girl. I didn't dress the right way. I didn't act the right way. And so that was a lot of feelings to deal with. I mean, there was always an intrinsic part of me that would fight against that. But when you hear that and you're made to feel that for so long, it does do damage. And so when I was eight, I actually found food to be an emotional comfort. And that lasted for a very long time until I was 18 and discovered alcohol. 
So I did have friends at high school who used to go to parties and have blackouts and tell me about it. And I always used to think, oh, that's such a bad thing to do. But at 18, I started going out and these were the glory days of 20 cent drinks and 50 cent drinks and $5 buckets. And you could go out and have a cheap night. And at that stage, I was very overweight because the emotional eating had kept going. But alcohol gave me something that food didn't give me. And that was a sense of confidence where I could drink and sort of totally forget all of that pain and all of that facade that I was trying to put around myself in trying to be who I thought everybody else always wanted me to be, trying to figure out who that person was so I could fit in with everybody else. And alcohol allowed me just to go out and have a good time and not care and go up and talk to people. And mind you, I always used to be the person who was at the side of the dance floor with my 10 drinks in front of me not really dancing, but just sort of, I talked to anybody who came past, I was the one who was just drinking because it was the easiest thing to do. And that sort of lasted a while. And I don't, I start, I started drinking Bundy and Coke and that was my go-to drink with the occasional fire engine bucket chucked in there. So I wasn't drinking to pass out point at that stage, but certainly drinking to making myself sick. And then at 21, I sort of reached the point where a lot of that drinking had happened. I was working full-time. I had two part-time jobs. I was studying university and TAFE. And I've sort of always been the person who I'm either using food to distract myself. I'm using alcohol to distract myself. I'm using work and things and activities to distract myself. Because if I don't have downtime, I can't think about the things that are painful or the things that I want to avoid. And so I reached that stage. And at this stage, I was tipping the scales at 100 kilos. I stopped weighing myself because it was just too depressing and decided I would move to Italy. Got a job nannying for a German princess, as you do. As you do. And hang on, moving to the land of carbs and comfort eating. Yeah, yeah. As well. Yeah. And I'd never left Australia before. The only Italian words I knew were spaghetti, lasagna and chow. (laughs) And um, I thought, yeah, I'm just going to pack up and move to Italy. Sure. I remember my mum was overseas at the time and I'd made the whole decision. I'd sorted it all out. She came home and I said, "I'm, I'm going to Italy and I'm going to become a nanny. And this was at a time where there were no mobile phones. There was no email, nothing like that. So communication was always going to be very difficult. And I remember her saying, are you sure it's not a front for a prostitution room? And I said, mom, like keep in mind, I'm over a hundred kilos. I am not the most attractive person in the world. And I said, mom, if they need to get me as a prostitute, they must be pretty hard up. And so then when I did go to Italy, it was the first time I was actually exposed to prostitutes. And I used to see them all the time and just go, yeah, no, they really didn't need me to be a prostitute. (laughs) But yeah, you say carbs and whatever, but it's such a different culture and such a different way of eating. And there's not hungry jacks at the end of the street. Don't get me wrong. There was a pizzeria who I um, made very good friends with and I discovered gelati. And when I would have time to myself, I would eat a whole pizza and half a kilo of gelati. But I was walking around. I was really active. I was eating Mm. different foods. Wasn't drinking a lot because I was very difficult to make friends. I was traveling all the time with the family. Had a few sort of outings, but it was at that stage that I was introduced to wine and that sort of set my drinking off on a whole other path. But I did Mm. lose 20 Mm. kilos and Mm. I came home, but I had done none of the work. It was just easy because it was just by nature and by environment. And so after a year, I came home and I had put it all back on. It was just so easy to fall back into the old habits after that time. So I put the weight back on. I was back out drinking with my friends and I was back to being miserable. So I decided I'd go and move to London. And so I moved to London for a year and a half. And of course, London being the drinking culture that it was. Mm. I was nannying again. I discovered pints. I discovered cider. And suddenly, you know, I could easily be having five or six pints in a drinking session, which is over three litres. And so that's sort of the time where there were some really big blackouts. There were some 
scary situations <laughs> that luckily we were always in groups and things like that. But I guess as I was nannying, I was always living with the families I was nannying for. So th- there was always that kind of environment where I knew I couldn't be too crazy because I had to come home. But I do remember one of the families, the mother was an alcoholic. So that was an interesting insight to sort of that life. But it certainly was one of those things where I was only drinking on the weekends whenever I had time off because otherwise I was res- responsible for the children. Uh, so when I came back, oh, I, I, I did lose another 20 kilos in London. So when I came back, I was like, right, okay, I'm learning the lesson because that sense of relapse that I had, it is just the worst feeling. It is the feeling of letting yourself down. It's depressive. It's depressive to think that I had done this and I've let it happen and again. And so I really have an understanding of how horrible that was. So I was really determined not to let that happen again. So I came home, went to Weight Watchers, lost sort of another 15 kilos. So that sort of weight was off, but the drinking had not changed. I sort of got back into the old habits with my friends. I was living by myself for the first time, had my first sort of full-time job out of university, had my first relationship. So there were all these changes happening, but I couldn't actually accept any of it because other people, I was getting attention for the first time. People were wanting to be around me, but I still had this voice in my head going, you're not lovable. You're not worthy of this you're not the kind of person who attracts the attention. And so I broke up with my boyfriend because I was like, you might love me, but I don't love myself. So I can't accept that. And then that decision spiraled my life absolutely out of control. So drinking escalated monumentally, massive blackouts, going out every weekend, horrible promiscuity, waking up in terrible places, not knowing where I was, scaring the bejesus out of my mother, who when I hadn't come home, if I was staying with them, it was bad. It was really, really bad. And just scares me so much now to think about the situations I put myself in and flashbacks of things going, oh my God. And for some reason, when I became a mother, those flashbacks happened more and more and more and more. And it was just, I mean, I I knew what was going on. I was just in such desperate need of wanting to feel accepted and wanting to feel loved and wanted to feel like I did belong and that people could like me. And through all of this, I was doing counseling, I was doing therapy, but there was just nothing that was really turning those internal switches off to say, you are worthy, you are kind, you are good, you are friendly, you're a fabulous person. There was none of that sort of sense belief. And so eventually I met my husband and we got married and the drinking certainly sort of curtailed off through that. And then we started to try to have a child because we were older parents and I fell pregnant very quickly, but had a miscarriage. And so of course, how do we cope with feelings? We drink. (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's what I was always taught. I mean, alcohol had been around me since I was a little kid. Parents had my brothers and I by the time they were 25. So there were always parties. And I remember being at all my parents and their friends' 40th birthday parties. And so it was just around and it was just how we coped with things. And so then my husband's mother unexpectedly died. My grandmother died. I fell pregnant again with twins, miscarried, lost one of the twins. So there was just so much trauma going on. So it was drinking, stop, drinking, stop. I didn't drink when I was pregnant, but it was quite traumatic uh, birth and always a, a bittersweet thing when you look at a baby and realize, well, there should have been two of you. Uh, So that was very traumatic for me. Mm. Probably took me a few months before I started drinking again. And then after a few years had my son, that stage I was 42. I was told there's an 85% chance you'll lose the baby. So I didn't connect with that. I certainly had more drinks in that pregnancy that I had in the first pregnancy in saying that maybe five or six, because when we found out we'd got all the tests done, he was fine. At about 10 weeks, I went, okay, all right, well, maybe he'll come. I've only got a 15% chance. So I didn't really invest too much into that because nobody was positive that I would actually have him. And for probably even up until five or six months, I still just expected that I lose him. Anyway, he popped out. And then, so that, that became harder. And I had two kids, older parents, And after a while, just sort of slipped back into the drinking. And when I went back to work, I was working four days a week. So I would normally drink Friday and Saturday. And then Thursday was my Friday. 
So I started drinking Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then as I became more sort of miserable and disenchanted with work, that became Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then that became Wednesday. And so suddenly five days not drinking and two days drinking became five days drinking and two days drinking. And so that sort of went on for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And I did different sober programs and things like that because my aim was always to try to achieve consistent moderation. Because some days I could just have two drinks. Other days I could have two bottles. It was Mm. never the same. Mm. And I was never conscious of, well, what would make the difference? I think if I look back now, the pattern of behavior was I probably started with just two drinks and then maybe the next night would be four. Maybe the next night would be a bottle. So there was this sort of Mm. gradual increase. Mm. I think when I really noticed it was when I was starting to drink on a Sunday and then starting my week going to work on a Monday, feeling groggy because I'd sort of drunk quite a bit through that stage. Late last year, I was diagnosed with ADHD. I also have an anxiety and depressive disorder. So my brain is not an environment where alcohol should be in at Mm. any way, Mm -hmm. shape or form. But the ADHD was an interesting diagnosis because I've been drinking since I was 18. So that's nearly 30 years. So I sort of realized, well, all this behavior and all this pain and all this isolation I felt as a child and teenager and even as an adult was part because of this neurodevelopment disorder that I have. But I actually don't know myself. I don't know myself. I was sort of this Mm. alcohol version of myself where I was, Mm. everybody would say, Fiona's the party girl. She's the extrovert. Yeah. You know, she loves to have a good time. And then as a result, I realized, actually, I don't. I'm Mm. an introvert. I don't Mm. like noise. I don't, I find situations very overwhelming. I don't often have the energy to talk to a bunch of strangers and I don't actually want to, but it's very difficult Mm. because I want to have friends and I want to have relationships, but at the same time, I don't have the energy to put myself out there. How much rejection that I've had over the years because try so desperately to fit in and you try to figure out the way people want you to behave. So you try to behave that way to be accepted, but you're still not accepted. And so there was sort of a lot of drinking still going on despite the fact I was on antidepressants, probably didn't work so well, but I tried to be the best drinker I could be and go, well, I'll have the medication in the morning. It'll be clear by the time I start drinking in the evening. So it won't affect my medication. And of course, my psychiatrist did not agree with my philosophy on that, but it worked for me at the time. And so things were just sort of continuing that way until late last year. It was a normal Sunday. I was sitting on the couch watching a movie with the kids with probably my third glass of wine at about 2 p.m. And my daughter said, why do you drink all the time? I arced up. I got really defensive about it. And I said, what are you talking about? I don't drink all the time. Wine is like a sometimes treat, like ice cream is for you. And she said, well, I see you drink a lot. Alcohol is really bad for you. I'm really scared you're going to get sick. And this is just the cut through the heart, eyes of a nine-year-old. And I thought, oh my God, I can't be in this environment where my daughter sees me drink and is constantly worried I'm going to die or I'm going to drop dead or get sick. However, she's manifested that in her mind from this action. And I sort of triggered into when I was nine and saw all this alcohol around and that situation and environment, that's what my memories are. And I thought, well, actually, I do want something better for her. I said, well, okay, I I hear what you're saying and I'll think about that. And I had read a podcast, Mm. um, sorry, I'd read a blog about uh, a woman who had done 100 days alcohol-free and I went, Mm -hmm. whoa, 100 days, oh, God, that sounds like a long time. And then I (laughs) discovered how I quit alcohol. Mm. And I listening to the podcast and hearing your initial story about doing your year and I thought, oh, year, oh, bloody hell, oh, I don't think I could do that. And then I thought, I I have to do something. I have to do something for my daughter to show that I'm serious. And I thought, okay, 100 days. I could do 100 days. And then I thought, what's the point? I've done months through pregnancy, didn't change anything. I've done sober programs probably for around 100 days, didn't change anything. So this short time period is not enough for me to sort of really think about, is this something I want to continue in my life? And I thought, okay, the more I was listening to your podcast and I'm thinking, okay, a year, a year, I have to do a year, I have to do a year. So I said to her, I'm going to do a year. And then I thought, well, you know what, I I will be accountable to her, but I'll be accountable to myself and everybody else. I posted it on Facebook. So I was like, right, I'm going to do a year. So that was in November. 
what that gave me was seven weeks to have a farewell to alcohol tour. And I <laughs> went nuts. Uh-huh. I reckon I drank more in those seven weeks than I had probably in the last seven months. It mm-hmm. was nearly every day. I thought, well, what's all the what's all the drinks I'm going to miss? Haven't tried that cocktail before. I'll give that a go. Haven't tried that bottle of wine before. I'll give that a go. And mm. that went for seven weeks. What I found was a massive increase in my anxiety, waking mm. up at the middle of the night, terrible, crippling, almost having to call the ambulance kind of panic attacks. Mm. And on New Year's Eve, I passed out having after having two bottles of wine. I woke up in the morning and it was like, okay, it just felt like my body was saying, oh, thank God you are stopping because Mm. I couldn't do any more. The first thing I did was I woke up, I didn't feel great. And I just said, body, I'm, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry I put you through this. Mm. And I'm thinking, what time am I going to start drinking today? And it was just this natural thought that Mm. I'd sort of had created. And so I went, oh, hang on. No, this is the first day. Mm. We can't do that anymore. Uh, well, I say I did that for seven weeks. I also did an enormous amount of preparation in those seven weeks. I was listening to every episode of your podcast, any other sort of sobriety podcasts I could get my hands on. I was writing lists of all the activities I would need to do, all the thoughts and things I would have to question. I had a graduate diploma of psychology, so I sort of had that mindset of more of a inner healing kind of thing. So I told that inner healer to shut up every time it said, you know, alcohol is really bad for you over the years. I told it to shut up, but I went, okay, I know you're there. Come on out. Let's work together on this and figure things out. So New Year's Day, I, I really started doing that, trying to identify my triggers, trying to really tap back into that younger self of how did this behavior all begin? What sort of came about it? Uh, and I was umming and ahhing about whether I'd do the six-week course and you know, and finally decided I would do it because I guess from the weight loss process, I knew I hadn't done the work. And despite still doing counselling all this time, I knew I still hadn't really done the work. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to make a meaningful change here, I need to actually do the work. I can understand why people choose to do it by themselves because it's really hard. It's really hard Mm. to come out and say, this is the truth of my situation. This is actually how bad it is. I need help because a lot of people feel enormous embarrassment and shame about that. I just don't see how you can do it by yourself. I would have got so far, but I think it probably would have been willpower that took me to that point. And after that dropped off and it has... 75 days sober today. So yay, yay, I know, 25 more days to 100. But when that willpower did drop off, the only option I had was to go into the tools, had to access the tools. And so Mm. I can't imagine what I would have been doing if the tools weren't there. But it was really, I had to make that commitment to myself to say, I'm investing the money into doing this course. Anything Danny tells me to do, I am doing. The daily tasks, sometimes I get a little bit behind, but I'd always make sure I'd catch up. I had my special notes. So anytime we were in the meetings, I'm taking notes. I had a list of everything I could do when I was triggered. And I would go back to that list all the time. In listening to a lot of the podcasts and a lot of other people talking where they said one of the difficulties was in responding to people when they said, oh, why are you giving up drinking? And so I really wanted to have some easy answers to that, that I could answer that. But also when the sneaky bitch came calling, I had easy answers for that too. So when people said, why have you stopped drinking? My simple answer was, I'm a better person without alcohol. Mm. That's it. Mm. People don't really have a comeback to that. Mm. So it seems to shut the conversation down pretty quickly. When I'm triggered, I just say to myself, I love myself enough to stay sober. Oh, hang on. I love myself enough to stay sober. Yeah. Love that. And then I would back that up with, I love my family enough to stay sober. Mm. Because when I started telling people the story about my daughter saying those things initially to me, they'd say, oh, you're letting your daughter make life decisions for you. And I went, "Mm, no, she's not making the decision for me. What she is, is she's just been a mirror to myself. Mm. These are all thoughts I had had for a very long time. What I'm doing is I'm actually acknowledging her concerns, recognizing I had the same concerns as a child, realizing I've already thought about making a change and understanding my decision I make doesn't just impact me. It's 
impacting her. It's essentially the same as secondhand smoking. It's the same kind of effect. And it's about understanding that in alcohol and drug circles, they call it third party harm. And that's what it is. It's who are the people in our environments that our drinking actually harms. It's not like I'm a violent drunk and I hit my kids or or anything like that. But it's not to say that the psychological impact my kids might be suffering. Am I the kind of parent who goes, oh, okay, so you've told me that you're suffering from my behavior. That doesn't matter to me. Mm. Because if I'd have continued drinking, that that is what I would have been saying to her. Well, that's the message that you're essentially sending out to them. And so then they create a core belief about themselves that, oh, I'm not important or this other thing is more important than me. And then fast forward that another 20 years or so or 10 years, and then you're growing up with this core belief that I'm not important or I'm not worth enough. Yep. to stop a behavior, then they create their own coping mechanisms around that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and they would be in the same position I ended up being, spending a ridiculous yeah. amount of money on counseling. Yeah. And when yeah. I became a parent, my um, beliefs or what I want to achieve as a parent was very simple. And it was, if my children have to go to counseling, I don't want to be the cause. You know, it was pretty, pretty simple, but I've Mm. been very open and honest, especially with my daughter around this process and really explained to her early on that it was difficult. It was hard. Some days I would be really upset. Some days I would be really angry and cranky. And this was sort of in the first few weeks. And I had said to her, I started very first day of the year and school hadn't gone back at this point. And she said to me, mommy, if it's really hard, you can drink until I start back at school. And I said, no, darling, that's not how it works. We don't stop trying just because it's hard. We don't give up just because it's hard. What we do is we have to work through that because otherwise we will never get past the hard point. And I said, amazing. Yeah, well, it just, and it really gave me that clarity because what I wanted to say to her was, even though this is hard, I've made a promise to you. And this is what I'm going to do. And it's not just for you, it's for me. But I also said to her, it's been really hard. And if I go back to drinking, I have to do this really hard part again. I don't want to do the really hard part again. Because each day I get over a hard part, I wake up feeling a little bit stronger the next day because I can remind myself yesterday was really hard, but I did it. And Mm. so when I get a hard moment today, I can remind myself Yesterday, I did the really hard thing. So I can do the really hard thing today. And even Mm. at 75 days, those hard moments become a little bit easier, a little bit easier, a little bit easier. Can I jump in, Fiona? Sorry, just like I just have to stop on this part because this is very important for people to hear, for people who are in early sobriety or at any stage of sobriety. We don't stop trying just because it gets hard, because it will get fucking hard. There are days when it's hard. There's no doubt about that. Unless you're Ash Grunwald and it's all pretty easy. (laughs) There are days when it's going. Whatever, Ash. Fucking hell, Ash. But there are days where it's going to be hard. And he did get a couple of hard days in there too. I must say they came later. But we don't stop trying. We don't stop digging in and using our tools, anything that we've learned. When we have the intention of quitting alcohol, We have the intention, we set up this intention for ourselves, I'm not drinking for X amount of time. We have that intention. And then sometimes the intention slips. And then we might start to think, oh, one won't hurt, or this is getting too hard. I'll just have one. But we've got to keep our intention strong. And when we have our intention strong and set, even if that's just daily reminded, this is my intention today, I do not drink. I absolutely do not fucking drink. When hard stuff shows up, we know we can do it and we don't stop trying just because it's hard. We're made of tough fucking stuff. Absolutely. And I don't think there's anybody mm. in this world who hasn't gone through a hard thing and overcome it. True. Absolutely. Right? Like we've all done hard things before and we've yeah. all had to find a way to get through it. That's one of the action steps, isn't it? In the program, I think I can't remember what day it is, but one of those action steps is to remember a time when you overcame something that was really, really difficult mm-hmm. and how that felt, how it felt going into it, how it felt when you did overcome it and remind yourself, I can do hard stuff. It is just about keeping it simple. 
because I think especially, oh, look, alcohol is an addictive drug. So we know that. So it is always going to be a little bit harder than maybe some of those other things. But it's about keeping it simple and go, well, how did I overcome that hard thing? Because normally overcoming a hard thing is because you've got a desire to achieve something or get something or receive something, right? There's the goal at the end that you push yourself through the hard parts to get what you want. And so for me, coming back to my why, coming back to my thoughts about, am I a quitter? I've quit things before. How do I feel when I quit? How do I feel when I succeed? What's the things I learn in those moments? Mm. And how do I want to feel right now? And being really conscious of that and being able to stop those trigger points. And I sort of took the sneaky bitch and gave her a bit of a personality so I could really say, no, fuck off. There used to be a place for you and that was okay, but there is no place for you now. And I think the language around that I found to be really powerful and I really found it empowering to take my power back, Mm. right? To sort of feel like, no, you what? You've been a bit of a bully. I don't like bullies, not having bullies in my life. So you can just piss off. (laughs) And so, you know, it, it was really just about taking that back. But I think what was important for me is really changing the language I used because there are a few things that I heard through different podcasts was about being a cycle breaker. Being a cycle breaker is a really difficult thing to be. And I thought, well, that's what I want to be. I want to be a cycle breaker so that I'm teaching my kids different ways. But to teach my kids different ways, I've got to learn different ways. And so that's what I was really conscious about doing too. And the other thing was don't negotiate your sobriety. Even before I started this, I realized very quickly, I can't just do a year. This has to be a forever choice Mm. because I've tried to moderate for 30 years. And I just said to myself, if you can't achieve something or learn how to do something in 30 years, who are you kidding? you do not have the capability to do this. So stop messing about, stop wasting your time, just make the decision that you are done. And Mm. so I didn't tell a lot of people that, maybe people listening now, they now know, but I did understand that I really had to give other people a year to come to terms with the fact that I was done. Because a lot of my relationships with people are based on drinking. That's what we do. So I'm sure people will go, I don't know how to cope with Fiona if she's not drinking anymore. What's that going to be about? But then I'm also very strong to say, well, that's about you. That's not about me. And if our relationship was only based on us being binge buddies or sitting down drinking together or doing that kind of thing, then probably wasn't a really good friendship to begin with. Mm. And one of the great things that we talked about in one of our group meetings was that the sort of understanding that people go, oh, you're piss weak because you're not drinking. And we would say, are you kidding? You have to be a hard, bad ass to stop drinking. Stop drinking is the hardest thing you will do. Choosing to drink is the easiest thing to do. That's right. So really understanding to go, oh, you have no idea how badass I am. We are badass bitches, Fiona. Oh, my God. <laughs> so badass. Yeah. And also, again, it was like that's a really empowering thought for me to go, actually, you know what? I am so strong. I am so much stronger than I ever thought I would be. Look at me over here being strong. Look at me over here sorting my shit out, sorting my problems out. Delving deep into my childhood where a lot of people are really scared to go because it's hard Mm. and it's Mm. emotional and it's a bit icky in there and maybe it's going to change relationships and it's not always a pleasant thing to do. The huge realizations I've had and I've just been life-changing, absolutely life-changing. And the greatest thing I've learned, I now have boundaries with myself. I can set boundaries with other people. Because that's always been one of my biggest weaknesses. I learned to be a people pleaser, behave the way I want you to behave. If you lose 20 kilos, if you dress differently, if you walk differently, if you talk differently, then you'll have a boyfriend. One of my friends told me once. So these people Mm. in your life will always try to tell you that you're not good enough the way you are. But I think it's up to us as individuals to go, well, actually, that's your kin. And I don't think that way about myself. So I can stand here now and go, well, there's actually nothing you can say 
that's going to shake me from this. Because Mm. one of the other really good things that came from the group too was just really going, is this situation big enough, significant enough, worthy enough for me to give up my sobriety for? And I'm I'm yet to find a situation that is. I'm yet to mm. even think about a situation that would be a party, a wedding. Is this person's wedding more important than my wedding? Like, mm. is that enough? If someone says, oh, but it's my wedding, have a drink. Mm, I think I can celebrate and be happy for you without having to have a drink. So mm. it's really bringing all of that in to say, this is the strength I hold now. This is the power that I hold now. And so for me, it's been a process of reclaiming that. Mm. I think I lost it. I don't actually ever know if I had it. (laughs) So, Mm. And to go, well, you know, I'm nearly 48 and now I am. And Mm. I put myself out into the world differently now. I totally revamped my wardrobe. I've totally cut off all my hair. Not that I'm bald, but cut off all my hair (laughs) and sort of gone, I'm stepping out into the world with confidence now because I think I even said in the group, I didn't know that stopping alcohol would give me confidence. I always thought it gave me confidence. Mm. It gave me nothing. It gave me regret, gave me anxiety, gave me depression. What's given me confidence is having the strength to stop, to hold my head up high and go, hey, well, bloody look at me over here doing this. You didn't know I was such a badass, but I am. So in Mm. your face. (laughs) well what gives us confidence too is doing difficult things overcoming challenges gives us confidence it's a great thing to teach our kids when we give them some hardship whether it's physical or you know something that they've got to work hard against to achieve something gives them confidence and we're the same we need to know that we can do hard shit yeah makes us confident and we realize how strong we are when we overcome stuff like this when we become badasses and can butt up against what everyone else expects of us what everyone else wants us to do what we've been marketed all this Mm. stuff when we can just go no, I'm not having a bar of it because I'm my own fucking person over here and I don't need that shit that makes us confident I like to think that we're bosses of our lives Yeah, that's so true. Like I like to think that alcohol makes the decision for us. Mm -hmm. So this is the opportunity for us to make the decisions for ourselves. And one of the things I'm trying to teach my kids at the moment is you're the boss of your feelings. You're the boss of your choices. Think about the choices you make. Are they good choices? Do they make you feel happy? That kind of really empowering thought to what are the choices you want to make? Do those choices make you feel good? Mm. And the benefit of all of this is being able to see your life much more clearly. And I think I wrote in the testimonial for the course, this course has totally changed the trajectory of my life because I had felt this big hole in so many parts of my life for so long. And I had this graduate diploma of psychology, didn't really know what to do with it. It sort of sat there for 15 years. And as all of this has come together, I thought, well, actually, I want to I help other people achieve this. And so as I started doing the course, I suddenly decided that I would start a diploma of alcohol and other drugs practice. So Amazing. I could combine that with my psychology studies to be able to help other people. And so again, I can't sit still. So I work four days. Now I'm studying full time. Anyway, sorted out. I'm only two weeks into that course. And the learnings I've got from that course have just mm. been amazing to understand that there's so much about we know, but we choose to ignore. Mm. We know alcohol isn't good for us. It's a psychoactive drug. It essentially makes changes through your central nervous system, which is your spine up into your brain. It literally gives us brain damage. And so is that the choice we make that we sit in front of our children going, look at me damaging my brain? That's what it is. And Mm -hmm. when I think about it in those terms, I go, oh my God, like I had the blinders on for so long. And I've seen the documentaries about all the damage alcohol does, the huge, huge increase in correlation between alcohol and breast cancer, especially for women, massive. I've got breast cancer in my family, not a good choice. And so how do we do that? How do we ignore all of this that we now know? And still just, that's the addictive power of alcohol, that it is so strong. Mm. It makes you totally ignore all of that. It's not just the fact that it's an addictive substance which releases dopamine into the brain, but it's also that it's so socially 
ingrained. Like it is the socially acceptable thing to do. And I think that rhetoric is changing now. That conversation is changing now, but advertising, making it part of our cultural conditioning. And then on top of that, it's an addictive substance. I mean, we're up against it. Talk about taking your power back. Yeah. And, yeah. and, a, and a, a generational thing. That's why I think of sort of my generation as the ones who will decide to be the cycle breakers or not. We're probably mm. the first generation that have now grown up really knowing and understanding impacts of alcohol. Our parents all used to drink drive all the time. No drama. Nobody thought about it. Random breath testing came in at the 70s. Good time to do that. But we're the ones who now make a much more conscious decision around that. What I find though, is having the conversations with people and it really makes them question their own drinking. And that's where it becomes really difficult for people to understand. As I learn more and I'm able to not just talk about my own process and the things that have become important for me, but also gaining more understanding about what's the values I have around this? What's the values I have around my own health? I want to be here for as long as I can to be with my kids and my family. So what are the choices I make? And for so many years, like I lost 35 kilos, I exercise, but why am I exercising and eating right on this hand, but totally undoing all of that work by drinking two bottles of wine on this hand? And so many people do the same thing, whether they go and slog themselves out at the gym, but they smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, whatever it is, it's this constant inner conflict that we have. And so how can we not bring those parts of our lives together to actually combine our values in all aspects of our life? Because I don't think anybody willingly sits there having a glass of wine going, yep, damaging my brain. It's all cool. Oh, increasing my risk of getting breast cancer. Excellent. Oh, there's some uh, liver damage that might be happening. We're not, but we know it. There's so many parts that we are the ones who grew up with the alcohol advertising at the cricket games and all that. But then how do we switch on our consciousness to be aware of that and go, well, just because I've seen it, just because it's ingrained, doesn't mean I have to do it. And so that's what I'm sort of thinking about too, to go, to me, it's easy to pass the buck on that. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I was raised like that. I was exposed to that. And that's mm. that's all that's all true. That all has an impact. But at the end of the day, we're the ones who make a choice about what we put in our mouths. Well, we've always got our free will. Like we have our free will. And it is ultimately, I mean, obviously there's traumas and things like that. And we've learned to self-soothe ourselves the best way that we knew how. Now that we know better, we can do better. So and and always knowing that we are the ones ultimately who have control over every thought we have, over everything we put in our body, every decision we make ultimately does come down to ourselves. Mm. It's different when you don't know better. But now when you know better, you do better. Absolutely. And and yeah. that's what's been so important for me is the tools in the toolbox. As we said in the program, do the fucking work and don't fucking drink. Like it's as easy as it gets. <laughs> well, the thing is, if you don't want to drink alcohol, don't put a drink to your lips. Yeah. Have the intention, like I talked about earlier, if my intention is to not drink, then do not contemplate the thought of putting a drink to your lips. It's not negotiable. It's as soon as Ash and I talked about this on a podcast yonks ago, but it was like hundred percent commitment. 99% commitment is very different to hundred percent commitment. So if your intention is to absolutely hundred percent, I am not drinking, I'm committed to this. I'm not putting a drink to my lips. You won't. If you go to 99%, if my intention is to pretty much, I'm not going to drink. I don't want to drink, but 99% sure. There's that bit of movement there. Where, so that's when the sneaky bitch gets in. So stay committed. Use the tools that you're learning on this journey. There's no point in learning tools and not implementing them. I know it's hard sometimes and we come up against shit. It's fucking hard. We don't want to sit there and meditate on our feelings or we don't want to feel the feelings. We don't want to. But ultimately, if we want to make change, we have to do things differently. And that's what it comes down to. In the end, it's like, do I want this or not? And I've got a choice right now. What is my intention? I can do the same shit the way I've always done it, or I can fucking go, I'm going to do something different and do it differently. Because if we don't do it differently, nothing changes. We've got to make no. the changes. It's, it's, it's hard that, um, sometimes. It's but that if you it. always do what you've always done, you'll always get, get what, you, what you've always got. Always got. And, Thank and you, Wayne just, Dyer. Yeah, it's just like, Mm. there's nothing simpler than that. 
waking up and making that choice every day. What has been important for me is just really shifting my thinking about that because I learned very on drinking requires too much thinking always going, oh, how much am I going to drink? What time am I going to drink? I have to stop drinking so I can drive tomorrow. Who's going to be designated driver? All this stuff. And so that mental load has been taken away. And so it is true, you know, you do release an enormous amount of mental energy. And that has not been replaced with anything around drinking. What it's been replaced by is having space for the tools to sink in and you got it. Practicing, yeah. practicing the tools takes practice, right? And it is hard. It's hard to get in that process of journaling. It's hard to get in that process of meditation. And what I would say to people is try different things. I mm. mean, it didn't work for me doing it in the morning, so I do it in the afternoon. I find yeah. it a, an easier process to do in the afternoon as a way to process what's happened during the day for me so that I'm getting it all out of my brain So I go to sleep. I go to sleep listening to a yoga nidra or meditation or something like that. I find I have much deeper sleep. Mm. What I will say to prepare people, because it was something that I was not prepared for, the amount of dreams where I'm drinking is horrible. And I wake up just going, oh my God, I'm consciously going, oh my God, I've been drinking. And it's really unnerving to have those dreams because they're so vivid. And Mm. there's always, always this sense of regret and remorse and, oh, my God, I'm going to have to tell my daughter and it's it's Mm. terrible. And I know that will go eventually, but I sort Mm. of wake up and just go, well, you know, I think that's the sneaky bitch trying to get into my dreams. Another good reminder to not drink because what these dreams are telling me is how I will feel. And if Mm. I wake up from something that's not real and I feel this bad, imagine how bad I would feel if it was real. Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's it's about going, okay, great. And so I use that and I'll write it down. Oh, I had this dream, blah, 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 blah. It was really terrible. This is what happened. And if I'm triggered, sometimes I'll go back and I just keep a separate dream diary of all these things to remind myself, oh, I remember how horrible that felt. Remember how terrible it was. Remember how upsetting such and such was or, or whatever. So do whatever works, yeah, play around, whatever. try different things. Sometimes you can just focus on the little reasons why you're mm-hmm. doing this. So one of the things I've done is I calculated an average of how much I would spend a week on alcohol and I have a deduction that comes out every week into a separate I don't drink alcohol bank account. And when I see that money at a year, I'm going to do something with that money. And so You're I'm going like, to go spend it at the alcohol-free I'm bar gonna, in Melbourne. I'm going to spend it at the alcohol-free bar because even though alcohol-free cocktails don't have alcohol, they still cost a bomb. They're still bloody expensive, aren't they? They're still bloody expensive. And <laughs> it's easy to spend a lot of money in Melbourne without actually drinking. So yeah, <laughs> so well, true. I'm the same, you know, I've got to save the money to go to Melbourne. Yeah. The little things like that, you know, thinking about little rewards. So I've got to say the first few weeks went to my new wardrobe purchases, but having rewards for yourself where you can actually, because I don't, I don't think it matters how old you are. We all love a good reward system. You know, I have reward systems for my kids where they get a little tick and at the end they get their reward. And so it's the same kind of thing. And I just think, right, all the good things that you think are going to happen happen and then have that list of whys that you can go back to like I just cannot stress that enough because it's almost like having the sober version of yourself talking to you when you want to become the drunk version of yourself yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. and really taking the time to identify what's happening in the triggers that's sort of really been another Mm. really huge wake up for me is finding a lot of the time what I'm triggered if I'm angry about something I'm stressed about something. When I really look into it, it's just little me that's Mm. being triggered Mm. and going, okay, okay, this stems from what happened to me as a child. So it's little me that needs healing right now, not adult me. So how can I talk to that little version of myself to go, it's okay. You're getting Mm. upset about this because of X, Y, and Z. That ability to tap into that and really start that self-healing process Mm. has been so huge for me just because the hurts that you don't address or the issues you don't address because you just numb them away with alcohol, they don't go anywhere. Mm. They just stay. They get stuck there in the body. And and Mm. then we pass that genetically onto our kids. Mm. And this is the whole sort of theory around generational trauma. Why do things that happen a few generations ago impact to the generation now? It's because the body stores all of that. 
and mm-hmm. is passed through. And it's like, well, if I've got to start healing myself now so I can teach that to my kids now. Yeah, the future healing. Working yeah. on the compassionate inquiry approach to the mm-hmm. triggers is a really big component as, as well, like realizing, okay, what's triggered me? What's the situation? What's the story I'm telling myself? Where mm. does that come from? Is huge. So obviously it's it's early days for you, but you're very, very passionate, which is amazing. Mm. And I love this sort of everything you're taking on and learning and, and really grabbing it with gusto and going for it, which is really what is required. We have to kind of, like we said before, we have to kind of put this stuff into action and work on it and face our demons sometimes. But you said using the tools for people that are listening. So what's one of the things that you found the most beneficial in the course as as a tool to be able to implement when things got tough? I think for me would be the RAIN technique, probably the best person to explain what that is, Mm -hmm. but just that ability to go in and ask those questions to yourself. You tell people what it is and then it'll make sense. Yeah. Well, the RAIN technique is something that Tara Bruck uses. She's an amazing psychologist and I was lucky enough to be on a call with her in Gabor and it was right at the time in the middle of that challenge and Mm, we were talking about different processes and one of those being the RAIN technique that she uses, which it's everywhere on YouTube. You just type in the RAIN technique. It's the same kind of concept as what we talk about a lot on the podcast. It's about recognizing the emotion that you're feeling, recognizing what's happening. That's the R in the rain. The A is allowing. So allowing, is it okay for this to be there? What what it is that I'm feeling? The I is inquiring. So what is this all about? What does this mean? Just getting inquisitive and inquiring about what it is that's triggering you. And then N is nurture. So how can I nurture myself through this? And it's just such a beautiful way of responding to what's showing up. And it's a beautiful acronym. So having that acronym is really helpful because it gives you a framework to work around. I would just say to people listening, go and Google the RAIN technique with Tara Bruck, there's loads of them there on on YouTube and she'll take people through that technique and it's Mm. absolutely beautiful and Mm. it's very useful to people in recovery. Absolutely. And it's something you can do anywhere at any time. It doesn't have to take a long time, but I've particularly found it really useful because I would normally be a very reactive person to things. So I would get upset and respond and do things really quickly. But now I just take a moment to just go through that. And I find it really helpful to center myself before I respond to something and to actually deepen that awareness of what I'm actually feeling, what's actually triggering this, having that inquiry to understand. And again, it is something that takes practice, but it is for me, that's my go-to. That's yeah. the first thing I will do in that. And because it highlights things that you weren't even aware of. And until you become aware of it, you can't deal with it. Yeah. And so that's released an enormous amount of stuff for me and things that you just kind of go, oh my God, where did that come out of? And that sort of linking into that streaming consciousness of journaling too, like mm-hmm. some of the stuff that came out around that was just, Jesus, I had no idea that mm-hmm. was there. But feeling an enormous sense of a weight being lifted off my shoulder when those mm-hmm. things came out. And and sometimes like I actually had the physical sensation of that has been released. I just kind of felt lighter. That's gone. And just like, oh, Great. I mean, I've got no idea how much is still sitting there each time it happens. So I really feel that that is out of me, out of my system, out of my subconscious, and that bit's gone. That is huge. So yeah, absolutely. Mm. And Tara's podcast episode on that was really fantastic as well. So yeah, yeah, um, that's she is wonderful. Thing. She's yeah. a wonderful teacher. She's got an incredible podcast channel, and definitely, I'd say that's a great resource for people. Uh, she's absolutely fantastic. Well, I tell you what Fiona you are one hell of a good student I must say thank you I always like to try to get an A plus so yeah (laughs) you've done well A plus from me and it's just so wonderful to see you doing so well and being so passionate and also to go on and continue your studies to be able to help people in the future with this exact same thing I think it's absolutely wonderful and because you are a good student I'm sure you're going to be very good at it which is Uh, so fantastic well thank you and I just I let the group know 
that I was doing the podcast today and we all want to say half of all of us how much we value you and Lyndall and the work that the two of you have done to try to build this community and to really invest in helping other people is monumental and we all just feel very passionate about recognizing that and wanting mm-hmm. to let other people know that you and Linda are just the most amazingly compassionate, understanding, knowledgeable and wise people. And we would say, especially Linda, she tells me to do anything. I am doing it. I'm not messing about with her. So, yeah. 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 It's like the Yoda of sobriety, you know. Um, <laughs> Lyndall the Yoda. She'll love that. Lyndall is, is the Yoda of all things. And being, I think, so open with your experiences and the knowledge you've gained and the ability to just change so many lives because it's not just our lives, it's our kids' lives, it's our family's lives. So the ripple effects are monumental. So on behalf mm. of our group, I just wanted to share that with you. Totally oh, wow. unpaid, but, you know, I wanted to, <laughs> wanted to share that. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for saying that. And I'll also pass that on to Lyndall as well. Well, Fiona, thank you so much. And I love everything that you're doing. And I just think you're incredible. And you've done such an amazing job of transformation already. It's early days, but I can just see it snowballing and getting bigger and bigger and having a a massive effect on people all around you as well. So I just wanted to acknowledge that and put on you. Thank you. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I hope it helps others. And if you're thinking about the, doing the course, just do it. It's the best investment in your life that you will make, without a doubt. Oh, amazing. Thanks, Fiona. See Thanks. you soon. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.